0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. I'm a PhD student at Northwestern University. Today I'll be speaking with Lawrence Glickman, a historian and the Stephen and Evelyn Millman Professor in American Studies at Cornell University. We will be discussing his brand new book, Free Enterprise on American History. Free enterprise is an everyday phrase that connotes an American common sense. We see it everywhere from political speeches to pop culture. Some commentators even call Christopher Columbus and the Pilgrims free enterprisers. In his new book, Free Enterprise, Glickman analyzes that phrase's historical meaning and shows just how it became common sense. Glickman traces the phrase from its many 19th century meanings, including its associations with abolitionism, and free labor, to its conservative reformulation in the 1920s and 30s. It's a remarkable, deeply researched book that offers much to intellectual history, political history, and the history of capitalism. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Lawrence Glickman about his fascinating new book, Free Enterprise. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for having me, Dexter. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the book, uh, and I'm thrilled that we're getting a chance to talk about it. Um, so, we always start our, uh, our, our interviews off with the same question,
1: how did you end up becoming a historian? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think part of there, there's a long-term story and a shorter-term story. The long-term story is that I loved reading about history as a kid, but really had no idea that it was something you could do for a profession. Um, and I was very lucky that my freshman year at Princeton University, I... Kind of as a lark, took a course taught by Sean Wilentz called American Social History, and that course introduced it, introduced me to all kinds of uh, historical topics that I hadn't studied in my high school curriculum. Uh, you know, we talked about working class history and the history of enslaved people and women's history, and uh, it really blew my mind how history could tell the story of ordinary people from the bottom up. How there was still a lot we didn't know about history uh, or we're just learning. And um, I decided to become a history major. Up until that point, I thought I would go to law school. And I remember around my junior year, I think, I asked Professor Wilentz, how do you get that job that you have uh, being a professor? And he told me, I mean, I kind of knew a little bit about graduate school, but not that much. And he told me about that and then I decided to, to uh, go to graduate school because I love the history courses I took as an undergrad, and I particularly loved uh, researching and writing in history, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to continue that process.
0: Well, that's actually really lovely because Sean Bowen's, uh is one of your blurbers for this book.
1: Yes, yeah, it came full circle. I was so delighted that they asked him to do so and that he agreed to because he really was... Uh, one of the people who inspired me uh, to go into the field of history. Well, that's fantastic.
0: Uh, and what brought you to the topic of this book, uh, Free Enterprise?
1: Yeah, that's also a, a, has a long-term and a short-term answer, I guess. The long-term answer is that the very first day I started my first job as a professor at the University of South Carolina, um, I remember I was unpacking boxes in my office. It was before the start of the semester. And a student came by just to introduce himself and he said to me, don't you think the reason America is so great is because of our free enterprise system? Now you have to keep in mind, I had just moved from Berkeley, California only a few days earlier. Uh, and, uh, that wasn't a sentence I would have ever expected to hear in Berkeley. Um, and, uh, it got me thinking about why people use that term, free enterprise system, what they meant by it. And I remember asking him, uh, although I don't remember his answer, uh, what he meant by that term. But I kind of had it in the back of my mind that it was something that would be interesting uh, to study. Um, And then two things over the course of my research career, much later on, got me on the topic. The first was that when I was researching the history of consumer activism, Uh, I came across the term free enterprise in the context of 19th century abolition. Abolitionists used the term free enterprise in contradistinction to slave enterprises, that is businesses that were dependent on uh, the labor of enslaved people. They used the term free enterprise to talk about businesses built on free labor. and uh, That was really one of the early uses of the term in American history. Uh, in the 1830s and 40s. But then probably the main thing that spurred me to write this book is um, after I finished my study of consumer activism, I was working on issues of public spending and consumption. And um, I began to research debates about public spending in the United States in the post-war years. And one of the terms that I often found by people who opposed A public spending agenda was free enterprise. They contrasted free enterprise with public spending. That wound up being the subject of the final chapter of my book. But um, I didn't know it at the time. But I began to decide, I, I decided that studying this sort of vague but seemingly all pervasive notion of free enterprise might be more interesting than the topic of public spending. So I kind of abandoned that topic and turned to the history of free enterprise.
0: Well, uh, yeah, your your book does a lot with the phrase free enterprise, and you've already kind of uh, um, uh, talked a little bit about um, the 19th century uh, use of that term, but you go all the way up to the present. Uh, And the major portion of the book examines um, the conservative project to redefine that phrase in the early 20th century. Um, to make it um, uh, more tied to things like markets and the business community. Um, uh, and then uh, during the New Deal order, to turn it into common sense. Yes. Uh, and I was so fascinated by this idea of common sense as almost like a historical object, You know how actors constructed it, how it can achieve um, political ends. Um, and so my, uh, I just have a methodological question for you. How can a historian write the history of common sense?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I gave a lot of thought to that. By the way, I was very influenced by uh, Sophia Rosenfeld's book called Common Sense, uh, which is a wonderful treatment of the kind of intellectual history of that idea um, in the 18th century and into the 19th. Uh, but one of the things that frustrated me when I began grad school, which was thought, Acme of the new cultural history, that moment and the new cultural history, it struck me was all about the new, the obscure, the things that, as Robert Darnton said in his book, The Great Cat Massacre, what cultural historians should study is the joke that we don't understand. And in his case, he was trying to understand why a group of Parisian artisans thought it was hilarious that they had murdered uh a number of cats of their mean uh, overseer, the person who ran their shop, um, and he, yeah, you know, he—that was his paradigmatic example of what cultural history should do. And while I thought that was interesting, uh, to me there is so much buried in things that we take for granted, and I think so much of the historical project is about uh, denaturalizing things that we take for granted, trying to understand them um, uh, uh, afresh by looking at them maybe from a different angle. Often that angle is historical. You know, when did this term come into use? What did it mean when it came into use? What were some of the debates about the meaning of a term that we don't debate anymore? Uh, this was a really important thing for me. Uh, I remember reading Peter Novick's great book on the objectivity question in American history. Um, uh, that came out, I think, in the late 1980s, and uh, Novick says something in his introduction along these lines as well. That uh, you know he's studying he's studying something in his case objectivity that we all think we understand, but that actually is super hard to define. And I kind of uh, was influenced by by that model and wanted to pursue it. Myself, I don't know an answer to your specific question. If I really have a, a great methodological uh, answer to your to your question about that, but I, I you know, for me, my technique is often to um, look at the history of terms. You know, my first book was about the idea of the living wage, and a lot of it was sort of tracing when did people start using this term, and uh, isn't it significant that they started using it in the eighteen seventies rather than. You know, I don't know, the 1840s or the 1920s. Um, and with my work on boycotts, I was also interested in that term when it came about um, in, in 1880. And for this project, uh, it seemed super important to do that because people, even historians use the term free enterprise without defining it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I wanted to go beyond that. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, and so I mean, yeah, your 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 um, methodology is actually really interesting, uh, and it seems very laborious. Uh, I mean, I was um, just going through the the footnotes, and uh, the amount of material that you went through for this book is just astounding. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess like when you're talking about common sense, it's so diffused. It's, um, uh, you know, it's it's kind of everywhere, and so. Um, you know, you, you look for quotidian documents, I think is your in one point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to do was write an intellectual history of people and ideas that at least until recently, most intellectual historians wouldn't have been interested in because I'm not looking at canonical thinkers, um, looking at really people who were mostly publicists. You might even call them propagandists, uh, mostly second order intellectuals, um, But I think these types of people are very influential, and uh, they are often people who don't leave behind an archive. They might leave behind an op ed or a sermon or a political speech. Um, And so I thought it was my job to kind of track these things down to the extent that I could. And, uh, you know, I'm really lucky that I'm writing this book. I wrote this book in the last decade when, you know, so many um, sources uh, are now available online that weren't available previously. Uh, you know, using newspaper, uh, resources was one of the central things that I, that I did in this project. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about the argument itself now.
0: Um, sure. and so, uh, the idea of free enterprise, um, you know, became common sense. Uh, but what's really interesting about this is just how radical, Um, the idea of free enterprise actually was, Um, you know, for many of your actors, that meant um, rolling back the welfare state, uh, rolling back, um, you know, any of the new deal provisions. Um, And so just a really, um, uh, a broad sweeping question uh, that I hope you can handle uh, relatively quickly. How did (laughs) free enterprise uh,
1: come to be seen as common sense? Well, that is, you know, to me, the, $64,000 question of my book. (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with winning the narrative. Um, You know, what story is going to be compelling? And part of it, um, as I try to argue, was simply repetition. Uh, This term, this phrase was used over and over again. And uh, the arguments of free enterprisers from the start of the New Deal in 1933, through the late 70s, I would say, was uh, virtually unchanging. And so I think what happened was that uh, an argument that first was a minority argument, because most Americans really supported the New Deal and were in favor of it. Um, But that argument diffused into the culture, even when most Americans didn't buy it. Uh, as the new deal became increasingly, um, uh, unpopular as the new deal coalition split apart and so forth, I think it got more purchase and, uh, it was already familiar. You know, it wasn't like you had to make a new argument in 1973, you could make an old argument, but now it had a broader audience. And that, uh, my first chapter of the book, I decided to almost start at the end, uh, because I wrote about this, uh, document famous among some people. I call it famous, but I realize a lot of people don't know about it. Uh, I I know you did, but but it's called the Powell Memo, uh, which was uh, a memorandum written by Lewis Powell, uh, who was a corporate lawyer shortly to ascend to the Supreme Court only a few months later. He wrote this in August 1971. Um, And it's called The Attack on the American Free Enterprise System. He wrote it as a confidential memorandum Eventually it leaked out and became public and a lot of historians over the last 10 or 15 years have looked at it as a real turning point in American history. Uh, But my argument is actually what Powell did was really just the culmination of this four decade long free enterprise critique of New Deal thinking. Great. Um, and so uh, what's really
0: interesting about um, this, uh, this, this new common sense that comes about in, in the 20th century is just how different it was from um, the use of free enterprise in the 19th century. And again, you've already kind of touched on how abolitionists were using this term, um, but I thought you could uh, maybe uh, say a bit more about um, uh, like what a 19th century American would have meant by uh, free enterprise.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting story. Uh, I would say the main thing that I observed is that for most of the 19th century, one of the dominant meanings of free enterprise was as an attribute. So a lot of politicians and city boosters and so forth would talk about unleashing the spirit of free enterprise. Um, So free enterprise wasn't a thing. Uh, It wasn't a system as it became understood in the 20th century. It was really an attribute. And, um, you know, the first use I found of it, uh, of the term, was President Andrew Jackson using the term in an address in December 1832. And he used it in that way as an attribute. And what's interesting about it was that uh, many people, including Jackson, talked about the role of the state in helping unleash free enterprise. Uh, you know, this was the era of nation building and canals and infrastructure projects and so forth. And so it's kind of interesting because it's quite distinct from the uh, the vision that becomes dominant in the 20th century, which is very anti-statist. This vision of free enterprise um, included a place, at least many people who used it included a place for kind of robust state involvement as um, consistent with and, Symbiotic, even with uh, the spirit of free enterprise, mm-hmm.
0: and yeah, and that, that is just so different than um, yeah the reformulation in the twentieth century, at least a conservative reformulation, where they're almost enemies. Uh, the The state and free enterprise are these enemies locked in combat, exactly. Um,
1: and uh, so, can I just follow up with one? Absolutely, thing Absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. The one, th- I mean, one observation that I that I had about this is that um, the terms free enterprise and free labor were important in the 19th century, but free enterprise was sort of a a subset of the broader, uh, free labor ideology. Um, and, uh, they, they were kind of closely related to each other. One of the things I observed that is that in the 20th century, they flipped and, uh, uh, many more people spoke about free enterprise with, free labor being a part of the broader free enterprise system, but definitely a subordinate part. Whereas in the 19th century, it was really flipped that uh, free enterprise was sort of an attribute that free laborers had. It was an attribute of of, of a healthy free labor system. Uh, And because free enterprise in the 20th century became much more associated with, say, entrepreneurs and small business firms than with, uh, individual laborers. I thought that uh, flipping was telling. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I think it's very telling, and it um, it tells a lot of just like U.S. history more broadly. Um, uh, yeah, the uh, decline of the working class, the, this like ideological uh, endorsement of capitalism. It's 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 a, a really uh, important reversal. Um, so, I want to talk about this reformulation. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are several people um, who you cover in this book who uh, um, are involved in reformulating this idea of free enterprise. Um, but one person um, that I think might be a good uh, um, window onto these changes is um, Merle Thorpe, uh-huh. uh, the ed- the editor of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's uh, In-House magazine. Um, and uh, and so he's someone that you write about um, a fair amount in the earlier chapters. And so how did this guy helped modify the
1: meaning of free enterprise. Yeah. I think Thorpe is really important. Uh, one of the things I expected to find when I began to research this was that the kind of modern notion of free enterprise, uh, which arose, uh, in the 20th century, my guess was that it emerged in contradistinction to the new deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, which it certainly flourished in that period, but it actually emerged about a decade earlier in the 1920s. And I think Merle Thorpe was one of the key people uh, who was, uh, you know, the editor, as you mentioned, of Nations Business, this very important journal of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, and I think he was one of the key people, uh, not the only person, but sort of rethinking free enterprise. And he was one of the people who helped. Um, it from the idea of this attribute that, you know, individuals in a healthy free labor society possessed to uh, a quality of the business firm and uh, particularly the organized business community. Um, and uh, he introduced so many uh, elements that uh, became sort of standard part of free enterprise ideology a little bit later on, but when he did it, he was really, I think, formulating something new, uh, you know, such as the idea that uh, even though he valorized the entrepreneur and the small businessman and so forth, he also talked about the need for business to unite and to, uh, uh, to kind of work in concert with each other. Through lobbies like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for example, um, as a way of promoting their interests in society.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a really interesting uh, moment because it's almost like the this like growing class consciousness am, among business leads, uh, and it's it's this other feature of the the marketplace. And so you know you have this competition between capitalists, but then you also have this collaboration at a political level. Uh, and free enterprise is kind of like an ideological touchstone for that. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the New Deal is another um, big part of this book. Um, and you were just talking about how this reformulation um, almost or what happened before the New Deal. But you, you make another argument in the book that um, the New Deal order and the age of free enterprise um, shouldn't be seen as um, like distinct epochs. Um, that like, or or you, we shouldn't see it as like the New Deal um, order followed by the conservative backlash, um, that we need to think of these things as, uh, um, as united in some sort of a dialectic. Can you walk readers
1: through this um, bold historiographical point? <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, um, and I, I'm certainly not the only historian to say this, but ever since uh, the... I think 1989 book by edited by Steve Fraser and Gary Gerstel called The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order. Um, I think there's been this conception of a kind of neatly packaged periodization in which you have the New Deal reigning hegemonic. Now people differ on when that ended, you know, began, say, with the election of Franklin Roosevelt. In their book, they say it died with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Other historians have said, no, it really died in 1968 or 1971 or what have you. Um, And I guess while I really, um, I think that work is super important and I use the concept of the New Deal order a lot, I think it's really important to not overemphasize the degree to which um, the New Deal order kind of reigned unchallenged because from the very beginning, there were very serious challenges to the new deal which shaped it in fundamental ways and so the way i think about it is that free enterprise always needs an other and for most of its history at least in the modern sense the other for free enterprise was the new deal and um, they were um you know had different amounts of relative strength at different times but free enterprise uh, challenges to the new deal were important throughout even the thirties and forties. Um, you know, periods that we think of as, you know, the high point of new deal consensus in American history. Um, but conversely, I think it's also the case that say in the, you know, what Sean will calls the age of Reagan, the period after the election of Ronald Reagan, when conservative ideas seemed dominant, um, I think it's important to realize that the New Deal uh, order, New Deal concepts, um, are uh, still vying with uh, the conservative ones, which uh, you know became dominant, but again were never unchallenged. So I guess the w- the way that I think about it is um, as a constant tension with uh, with different levels of power, but that the two. Uh, have to be looked at in relation to each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um the free enterprisers almost gain their power um from this like this sense of uh being under siege. Uh this is like a common a common trope in the in the book um that you know you have these um you know business leaders, these people that are extremely powerful. Uh they operate uh, you know corporations or you also have mean um, you know, a small businessmen. Uh, and uh, and they just like constantly feel like uh, they're existentially threatened. Uh, and you call this uh,
1: elite victimization. Uh, do you want to say something about that? Yeah. Um, I think it's really important. Uh, one of the things that I was surprised to find is that free enterprise, which I guess when I started this project, I thought of it mostly in its economic register and maybe a little bit in its political uh, register, but what I discovered in my book was that you really need to think about the psychological register <laughs> and the idea of um, of powerful people feeling bereft and victimized and that they're about to lose a struggle and that it's an existential war um, is something that is absolutely essential to free enterprise uh, discourse. Um, you know, one of the things I just did a tweet storm today about the idea of free enterprise being under attack because Senator David Perdue, uh, recently posted a tweet saying free enterprise was under attack. And, uh, what I showed is that pretty much any decade since the 1930s, you can find dozens of people saying that there's really no point when free enterprise isn't under attack. Almost definitionally, uh, what it required was a feeling that um the situation was dire and desperate and um i think that explains so much about our political uh vocabulary and the way in which um the what often i mean as you you kind of said in introducing this what might not at first make sense like why would powerful wealthy people who were doing well, even under the new deal, uh, why would they feel so threatened? Um, but threatened they were at least they felt that way. And I think that, um, that was really central to their, to the power of their message was that it wasn't simply sort of a rational, uh, uh, set of claims. It was a deeply emotional set of claims and it was a, Set of claims about people being bereft, being aggrieved, being endangered of uh, being wiped out in some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you
0: have a um, an example of someone uh, a particularly uh, histrionic one,
1: maybe? Well, I think you know the uh, the kind of urtext text of this. I think is Lewis Powell's <laughs> memo that I spoke of earlier, and you have to remember, as I try to say in the book, Lewis Powell. Uh, Even though a lot of people who look at the Powell memo and say it's such an extremist document, it's a blueprint for the corporate takeover of America and so forth. But um, Lewis Powell was, um, you know, considered himself to be a very moderate personality. Um, But um, he said in that document that, um, you know, the hour is late. (laughs) Uh, You know, free enterprise is in danger and the hour is late. I think that was something like the last line of the memo. Um, so, uh, this was 1971. Richard Nixon was the president. Um, there had been some, you know, uh, a wave of kind of consumer and regulatory legislation in the late sixties, early seventies, there was the EPA and so forth, but it doesn't strike me as a historian that capitalism was, uh, in tremendous danger at that but that's what Powell wrote and that's what he felt. And, um, and so, you know, that's only one of about a million examples I can give you. Another one is, uh, Ronald Reagan's, uh, speech against Medicare, uh, which he gave in the early 1960s. And, you know, he had a famous line in there about how, if we don't stop this now, uh, our children and our children's children will not know the taste of freedom and we'll be the last People to have experienced what freedom means. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along those lines. Um, and what's interesting to me about this discourse is that uh, the predictions are always wrong, uh, but uh, that doesn't stop the next set of predictions from happening <laughs> when the next threat is, uh, you know, is assessed. And so there's kind of there's almost an endless loop quality to this.
0: Yeah, that, that 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 really comes through in your book. Um, the the rhetoric of free enterprise um, seems to just be fixed, uh, and so you have you know tons of changes between uh, 1930 and the 1970s, but um, like the
1: the, the rhetoric um, seems to almost just be stagnant. Um, yeah, and I would say that that was a huge challenge for me historiographically because we are taught as historians, as you know, to look at change over time and. Uh, What I was finding was really a shocking lack of change over time in terms of the structure of the rhetoric, some of the exact same vocabulary. Uh, You know, like, for example, free enterprises under attack, as I said, you could find that phrase uh, word for word, uh, you know, in every decade between the 30s and today. Um, So, what I realized, one of the things I say in the book is that although the text didn't change very much. The context changed a lot, and so that's, I think, one of the ways that I try to, to address this issue of change over time with a, a discourse that was really, as a you know, kind of frozen in amber almost once it yeah. once it developed, uh, and it was really a challenge for me as a historian. I wasn't used to that. I wasn't expecting that, and I didn't quite know what to do with it because I thought maybe I'm failing. As a historian, if I'm not finding change over time, that's what we're paid to do, after all. Yeah, no, I I think that
0: continuity is uh, is just as important, um, and I think that um, you you ended up uh, organizing the chapters along thematic lines. I think that was the uh, um,
1: the, the the way to go. Oh, well, yeah. glad you thought so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of how I, I decided to approach that, that issue. Yeah, yeah, uh, so. I want to
0: continue um, sort of like deconstructing this ideology. Um, and so, yeah, we have this uh, elite victimization, um, but this other aspect of it that's really interesting is um, the uh, just how free enterprise was basically an invented tradition. Um, you know, we, we have um, tons of actors uh, in your book talking about how the founding fathers and even Christopher Columbus were free enterprisers. Yes. Um, so do you, do you want to say something about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, ever since uh, Eric Hobsbawm introduced the term in the early 80s, I think, um, you know, I think historians have been very interested in the idea of invented traditions and to look at their power. And I think free enterprise is a really good example because as um, I tried to show, it was a term that really wasn't used that often. It was used, uh, you know, in these various ways in the 19th century. Uh, but really took off um, after the New Deal. Um, And yet people kept talking about the golden age of free enterprise in the past, uh, sometimes in the distant past, you know, with the pilgrims or with, as you mentioned, Columbus, or certainly with the founders. Um, And um, so it was a way of reading present political struggles into the past and sort of trying to find legitimation in history. And what helped these people, and we may talk about this more, uh, later on, but was that the term was very poorly defined and very vague. And so, um, you know, uh, you could get away with that. And, uh, uh what exactly did it mean to say that the founders believed in free enterprise? They never used the term. Um, but when you are floating the term that often and are making it common sense, then, um, you know, it's possible to make claims like this. And they repeatedly did, drawing on the lessons of uh, history as they invented it, really. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the um, sort of like the
0: definitional crisis. Um, so you open up that chapter with a really fascinating anecdote about, um, I forget the guy's name. Is it DeWitt De- 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 Emery? Um, yeah, very. Yeah, Dewitt Emery, yeah. the president yeah, so, of the
1: Small Business National Small Businessmen's Association. It. And so,
0: yeah, so his his son has to um, uh, write an essay, um, which is a, apparently a really common essay question on um, free enterprise, uh, and uh, and then this um, spins off into an like a, a nationwide definitional crisis
1: over free enterprise. Um, do you want to just say something quickly about that? Sure. Uh, I love that story because his son was a high school student and had to write a paper about free enterprise and uh, DeWitt Emery said to his son, well, I could tell you because I'm, you know, my job is to promulgate the idea of free enterprise, <laughs> but why don't you go to the library and look it up yourself? And the kid goes to the library and they can't find a definition anywhere. The next day, uh, DeWitt Emery sends his secretary to the Chicago Public Library, second largest library in the country, and three reference librarians are looking all day and they can never find a definition. And DeWitt Emery writes a column, and this is in uh, October 1948, um, about, you know, the definitional crisis that, uh, you know, this term is fundamental to American history, but the most basic reference books that we have, encyclopedias and dictionaries, uh, don't even define this. And uh, we really need to get those publications to do this, and we need to kind of uh, make sure that we have a ready definition for this term. And that follows only a few years earlier, uh, in 1943, during the war, uh, there was a Gallup poll that showed that only three in 10 Americans could define free enterprise. And as I try to show, uh, periodically there were these crises, this, what I call the free enterprise freakout, where people who uh, were charged with promoting the term and arguing that it was uh, a very basic American common sense would suddenly discover that actually nobody really knew what it meant <laughs> and even the dictionaries had weren't defining it uh and so uh this was a uh, uh a major thrust of free enterprise advocates i would say for about 10 years from the late 30s through the late 40s before they ultimately give up on the project and there were some very interesting offshoots free enterprise definition contests and the like um, none of which really work.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, re- I really like the um, chapter's use of, again, these really quotidian documents and evidence. Um, the fact that, you know, like uh, you, you read at the beginning that it was actually a really common essay question, um, you know, like what is free enterprise? Uh, and then again, the yeah, the definition contest, it, it really does show kind of like the, um, the, the breadth of um, this free enterprise ideology. Yes. Great. So I want to move on to the Cold War. Um, You know, you have the uh, business community organizing themselves around free enterprise in response to the New Deal. And then you have this big communist state, uh, you know, emerging from the Second World War as the U.S.'s primary um, rival. Uh, And so actually uh, I did an interview recently with Jay Sexton, and he said it was basically the, the, you know, it was almost custom designed to spark feelings of nationalism and unity and all that sort of thing. Um, But I'm wondering how this new geopolitical context changed uh, the free enterprise movement or ideology.
1: Yeah, um, I think, you know, one of the things that I guess um, I struggled with a little bit there is that free enterprise discourse was so much about the threat of internal subversion and much less about the threat of Soviet communist takeover. Um, so I think the structure of it was that the um, the Cold War was really important because it raised concerns about socialism and communism um, and the need to fight them. But what uh, strikes me about and, and often uh, free enterprises were quite explicit about this is that they really thought that uh, the path to Totalitarianism was the slippery slope path of uh, expanding the welfare state. You know what Hayek called the road to serfdom. Um, so, uh, from uh, from my angle, I mean, it's not like I want to understate the role of the Cold War. Uh, I think it's obviously super important as context. But I was surprised at the degree to which uh, the concern was that. The United States might slip into um, uh, some f- form of socialism of its own accord, uh, without really being aware of the repercussions. And you often find things people saying, "Well, it's much more likely we're going to follow the British model." You know, this is in the years after the war when, when uh, at least socialist government is expanding. You know, national health and, and this sort of thing. And there there seems to be a lot of concern that the United States might follow that model. Um, And I I guess I see less explicit concern with, you know, Soviet adventurism, for example, than you find in a lot of Cold War uh, rhetoric and other aspects of American life and American diplomacy.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, and no, I I I do think that it is actually interesting that um it plays less of a role than uh um yeah, than you than you find in other books. Um and I think it does say a lot about um yeah, their like the business community's concerns.
1: Yeah, I I think so. And you know, it could be that I I um maybe I wasn't looking in the right places, but the places where I was looking, what I was finding was was this concern that the welfare state was a wolf in sheep's clothing or a Trojan horse, or pick your metaphor, uh, that was, uh, that was, um, you know, uh, had a teleology that was very dangerous. Um, and, uh, and that seemed to be much more the concern than, uh, you know, the specific threat of the Soviet Union. Uh,
0: and so another chapter that you, uh, um, that you have near the end of the book is on, uh, Leonard Reed's essay, I pencil. Um, and it's something that I actually, uh, hadn't heard of before. And so has, uh, I was really interested in it. Uh, and so this is a, a fairy tale autobiography of a pencil and, <laughs> yes. um, you know, and it, 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 depicts the, um, you know, the miracles of the marketplace as, um, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan would say, uh, and so it ends up becoming really influential in the libertarian and just like, I guess a right wing movement, um. Can you share with listeners what this essay was doing and why it mattered
1: yeah um it turns out to be a really influential essay um and in fact my children in new york state there's a required economics course that they have to take in high school and uh, one of my kids had to read it for that wow. class. It was one of the first documents they read. So it's often, uh, you know, it, it's still pretty widely assigned and read. I have a, a niece who attended George Mason University and read the essay in a class on kind of economic thought there. Um, so it's not an essay that everyone has necessarily heard of, but a lot of people have come across it. And it's also very, very frequently plagiarized by by uh, columnists who aren't necessarily aware uh, that Leonard Reed wrote a specific essay, but uh, who follow the model of, um, of of the essay, which is essentially about, as you said, the miracle of markets. And Reed's point is that no no one person can make a pencil, and that no planner could produce a pencil. Yeah, the pencil is the result of millions of uncoordinated of actions of by individuals that are coordinated only by the price system in the market, um, and Reed's whole point is that this is a miracle akin to miracles of nature. Um, it's a really kind of nice distillation of free enterprise thought because it's it's um, his essay is uh, anti-statist without being explicitly so because he doesn't really focus on what the state does badly. He focuses on what markets do beautifully and miraculously that no state could possibly do. And, um, it was, um, a, um, very important, um, essay was written in 1958, um, right when sort of the libertarian movement was becoming popular and was, uh, you know, very, uh, very highly regarded by those people as sort of, uh, just a couple of pages long, but kind of put, um, the beauty of markets in, uh, in this fable. And I think what a lot of people liked about it was that, you know, there was this idea that free market conservatives, you know, uh, didn't really care about morality um, or beauty. They were just utilitarian and Reed's whole essays has a very religious quality to it that I think a lot of people liked. Mm-hmm. And, Almost and, a mystical quality. Mm-hmm. And, um, what's really
0: interesting is that, uh, uh and you, you, put this in the book that, uh, he would agree with Barack Obama's famous, uh, statement, you know, you didn't build that, you know, you like you, you entrepreneurs didn't build those rows as bridges. Um, and, and he would actually agree um, because he's saying that like no, you know, individual heroic capitalist is going to, uh, um, you know, like, you know, do everything that it takes to make this pencil and then get it to the market. It's actually the the, um, the marketplace. Um, the marketplace is like spontaneity and, um, you know, like interdependence that produces that pencil and gets it to you.
1: Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. I think someone else uh, called, called Reed's vision free market communitarianism. Mm. And it really is, a, you know, uh, the idea that, um, uh, you know, when uh, in the 2012 Republican Convention, which had this theme, yes, we built that and so forth, that really went against Reed's idea, which is that, you know, no person is an island and that uh, we are uh, very interdependent. But that interdependence is really manifested best and most sort of organically through uh, market relations. And so, yeah, so at the end of that chapter, I sort of contrast uh, and compare because there are, as you said, there's a lot of similarities between that uh, famous, you didn't build that speech by Obama, and also a similar speech given, I think, in 2011 by uh, Elizabeth Warren, that both of which were heavily attacked by conservatives.
0: Yeah. So I want to get back to the current moment um, and its relation to this um, longer history of enterprise. Um, but before we get there, um, something that your book does um, really well is, uh, you know, it, it obviously is focusing mainly on the conservative meaning of free enterprise, but you also leave a lot of space for these alternative uh, meanings that people assign, the phrase, assign to the phrase. And so, um, you know, you do that in the 19th century, obviously, um, as we've already talked about, but then you also um, talk about it in um, relation to the civil rights movement and even Uh, um, uh, you know, like labor and unions uh, in the 20th century. And so how did civil rights activists and unions claim free enterprise and why were they less
1: successful than their conservative counterparts? Yeah, that was one of the most interesting parts to me. One of the things that I, you know, saw right away is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, was unwilling to see the term free enterprise. Uh, to his critics. He would say, well, I'm actually, uh, I believe in free enterprise more than my critics do, and I'm saving free enterprise and so forth. And so there was kind of a liberal, progressive strain of free enterprise thought. But what was really interesting was in the 40s and 50s into the 60s, uh, a a number of people in the labor movement and also the civil rights movement tried to do this sort of rhetorical jujitsu, to reclaim the idea of free enterprise, um, and uh, from the point of view of uh, the civil rights movement, a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, the um, you know things like um, restrictive covenants that wouldn't allow a person to sell their house to uh, an African American family, for example. Uh, civil rights leaders would say, how is that free enterprise? You know, that's that's a violation of free enterprise. And uh, there were major debates about uh, the rights of sellers uh, uh, to determine who their audience should be, who their customers should be, with civil rights uh, activists saying, what free enterprise means is the freedom of the consumer to buy what she wants. Um, and with people like Lester Maddox, the segregationist, uh, governor of uh, Georgia who had a, a, a chicken restaurant um, and uh, uh, you know be, took a stand there because he said he was defending free enterprise by choosing his customers and not selling his product to African-Americans. This became sort of a flashpoint on what the meaning of free enterprise was. Was it the right of producers and owners to determine their Customer base, or was it the right of consumers to purchase freely? And uh, so, this was a kind of a surprising strand of of um, of civil rights uh, language that I um, tried to unearth here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it points to how um, the, the the phrase "free enterprise" doesn't have to be anything like it. Um, it, it it like the, the the words themselves are so vague. Um, uh, that um, they,
1: they can be co-opted by um, different groups for different reasons. Exactly. And just in regard to labor, I was surprised that I wasn't surprised at all the conservative labor leaders in the American Federation of Labor used the term free enterprise a lot. That didn't surprise me. Uh, but I was, you know, a little bit surprised that Walter Ruther, who was kind of your, you know, kind of quintessential left leaning labor leader, you know, the head of the United Auto Workers and kind of the person most associated probably with the left wing social democratic side of the labor movement used the term all the time um, and, um, you know, again, contrasted what he thought uh, kind of working class vision of free enterprise meant versus, say, a corporatist vision of free enterprise meant. So um, you're, I think you're exactly right that it's sort of uh, a vague term that can contain A lot of different meanings. And for most of its history, um, you know, those meanings were heavily debated. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the present.
0: Um, And so uh, you you finished the book with an epilogue um, that um, has a really fascinating reading of Donald Trump and his relation to free enterprise. Um, And so, uh, you know, one might assume that this. You know, capitalist, um, you know, businessman who um, ends up in the White House um, would, uh, you know, feel strongly about free enterprise, but he hardly ever uses that phrase, and he doesn't really express much um, uh, sympathy for um, the underlying ideas. Uh, can you talk about how Trump understands free enterprise, or understands, uh, I guess, like his businesses and uh, his power, and also how his rise to power um, fits into your overarching narrative?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because one of the things I do is look at presidential platforms uh, and going back to 1936, which was the first campaign post New Deal, uh, the Republican platform was always larded with uh, free enterprise versus the New Deal um, as a major theme. And even as late as 2012, when Mitt Romney ran for president, uh, you know, He said free enterprise was on trial and uh, it was a um, uh, central theme in the platform of 2012. Uh, Donald Trump really doesn't use the term very often. In fact, I think I've only found one time when he actually used the phrase and it barely appeared on the 2016 platform. And uh, I think Donald Trump, you know, he's a very unraganist figure in that. He never talks about things like the miracle of free markets. Um, I think re- uh, Trump is a much more personalistic capitalist. And so he thinks of markets as a place where you screw your enemies over and you kind of take advantage of your connections and so forth. And that's, of course, how he operated in the New York real estate world. Um, so there's no sort of mystique of the market and Donald Trump's worldview. It's it's a really very much a... Uh, uh, There's no mysticism of the Leonard Reed type about what markets can do. Um, So in that sense, Trump is really marks quite a contrast with this very long tradition going back to Herbert Hoover on the Republican side in which you pay obeisance to that idea above all. Um, But as I try to show the other side of it, which we talked about a little bit earlier, the psychological register, uh, the feeling of bereavement and loss. I think there's no better embodiment of that side of elite victimization that characterizes free enterprise than Donald Trump. He is really, um, you know, that's sort of his specialty Mm -hmm. Uh, to talk about, you know, to talk about um, how um, people um, are being screwed over and that, um, you know, there is this tremendous feeling of. Uh, uh, we're losing uh, in this unfair contest and so forth. So I think he embodies the emotional, psychological side of that language uh, much less than the economic side of it. And the two had previously been married together. I think he's taking them apart a little bit. And uh, it will. Be, it, it is interesting, however, that um, already as the 2020 election emerges, we're seeing uh, more uh, language in keeping with the older Republican free enterprise rhetoric with uh, you know, already a lot of leading Republicans are saying, uh, our 2020 theme will be free enterprise versus socialism. And, uh, even Trump, he hasn't used the term free enterprise, but he has sketched out, you know, the, uh, anti-socialist, um, theme is going to be central to his campaign, uh, And uh, several other leading Republicans have said similar things. So I think we're at an interesting moment in free enterprise discourse.
0: Yeah, to say the least. (laughs) It's definitely interesting. Um, So we always conclude our programs with a question uh, about what our guests
1: are working on now. Okay. Well, um, I'm... uh, I guess I'm working on two projects which may turn into one. One is a history of backlashes in America. Uh, one of the things that has uh, I've noticed in the study of backlashes is that we tend to view them as discrete events. And one of the things I'm trying to do is say, partly based on the research I did for the Free Enterprise book, is that uh, it seems like backlash is much more a basic fundamental condition of American politics rather than an exceptional period of politics, which is how we often think about it. So I'm trying to think about backlashes um, in sort of a long durée framework, maybe going back to Reconstruction. Um, And so that's that's kind of one side of what I'm researching. And the other thing I've been looking at is the, um, which may seem unrelated, but I think it really connects up to it, which is looking at uh, the... Democratic Party and liberalism in general in the period of the 1970s and 1980s, when the New Deal order seemed to be collapsing, and how, uh, how they tried to um, revive or maybe even abandon New Deal liberalism in this period. And so I've been interested in looking at the, uh, both the symbolic but also the policy side Uh, of the legacy of the New Deal in the period when the New Deal for many Democrats no longer seemed necessarily a compelling or even a relevant model. And the reason why the the latter relates to the former, I think, is that what I'm discovering is so much of the fear uh, among liberals and Democrats in that period was the fear of setting off a backlash. Uh, You know, if we go too far in defense of New Dealism, uh, at a time when it's not particularly popular, you know, we're going to face the wrath of voters. And so we need to be very careful not to do that. And so uh, I'm finding a lot of, uh, kind of, uh, uh, sort of preemptive moves to avoid the possibility of facing a backlash.
0: Wow. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's almost like a, 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 proto, um, this is why we got Trump, uh, um, you know, line Dustin King, mm-hmm. um, Mm-hmm. Those projects both sound really interesting, uh, and I'm super excited to see if they converge or diverge. Uh, but uh, uh, until then, I really want to thank you for speaking with me today, Larry. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Well, thanks so much, Dexter. I really enjoyed it. And uh, the book is Free Enterprise, An American History by Lawrence Clickman. Uh It was published, it is being published um, today as we're speaking. Uh, And uh, you've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History.